I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody would pay me to ride my bike and drink beer and I never had to come to the office, I would take that in a heartbeat. Sounds great, (laughs) right? I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. And today is a very exciting day for Half Hour Intern. We are doing our first ever contest to uh, to support the Half Hour Intern Podcast. So thanks to today's guest, Eric Hobbs, who is a corporate attorney at a um, outdoor equipment manufacturer, uh, we got some really cool stuff to be able to give away to you guys to support getting reviews for the show on iTunes. So the contest will be around submitting a review for Half Hour Intern on iTunes. The contest starts today, Monday, September 5th, and will be going through Wednesday, September 21st. I will then uh, be drawing three names. Um, and three people will be winning stuff uh, that Eric has been so kind to give to the show for uh, for this contest. And I will announce on the episode on Thursday, September 22nd, who the three winners are. And actually, I will throw in a shirt. So uh, I'll maybe pick a review that is the most creative review out of all the reviews and give a shirt to that person as well. So there'll be four prizes given away. Three, the camping prizes will be given away at random. And then the shirt will be given away to the most creative review that we get. So the three prizes that we have um, from Eric are a Thermarest Pro Light Plus sleeping pad, a Platypus Big Zip LP Reservoir, which is basically like a Camelback, and then an MSR Miniworks ES Microfiber, which is a really cool, really nice... um, water filtration device for when you're out camping that it will just filter the water from a stream river lake anything like that and you have clean drinking water and all these things are pretty expensive and really highly rated on amazon and other sites and stuff like that i looked them all up so it's really really nice of eric and his company to donate these things um for the sake of the contest to help support half hour interns so um if only six of you guys leave reviews there is a 50 percent chance that you will win some of this stuff if 30 of you guys leave reviews then there is a 10% chance that you will win some of this stuff. And if you leave a really creative review, then there's a really good chance that you'll end up getting a half-hour intern t-shirt out of it. And if there ends up being more than 30 of you guys that leave reviews, then I will revisit everything with Eric and see if maybe we can get um, another thing or two. So that way, at a minimum, 10% of you guys end up winning something um, out of this contest uh, as a way to help support half-hour intern and help support the growth of the show. So on to today's episode. As I said, Eric is a corporate attorney um, who works for Cascade Designs, which is a company that designs and manufactures outdoor recreational equipment, and they distribute that under smaller brands, um, such as Thermarest, Mountain Safety Research, Platypus, Sea Align. So like literally anything that you can think of that's outdoor stuff, they do, um, like camping pads, stoves, tents, everything like that. So I think that this episode's kind of main purpose and an interesting takeaway for me was learning from Eric about being a corporate attorney um, and then really learning from him talking to him before the interview actually about how passionate he is about the outdoors and about camping and that's in like outdoor recreation that's such a huge part of his life so he decided to become an attorney and then tried to find a job with an outdoors company that way he could at least be surrounded by his hobby, even though he didn't get to work to do his hobby for a living, which I think is a really important concept because so often on the show and so often in life, we're told, you know, chase your passion, try to go after something that you absolutely love. But if you love golf, and I use this same analogy during the show, if you love golf, you don't have to necessarily become a professional golfer in order to be happy in life. You could go ahead and go maybe get a marketing degree from school and then get a marketing job working for Callaway, um, who makes golf clubs. And that is going to be so much better for you than getting a marketing job working for some other company. And Eric will talk about that a lot, about how much kind of richer his experience is at work by 
maybe not necessarily getting to getting paid to camp for a living, but at least working as an attorney at a company that he really, um, you know, likes the types of things that they make and likes what they're all about. We'll also talk about a lot of lawyer related things like litigation and uh, litigation against companies and getting sued and how all that works and um, patenting and intellectual property and all kinds of interesting lawyer stuff. Um, so yeah, really cool interview here with Eric. Without further ado, here is corporate attorney. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Blake, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So before we get started with the uh, deep craziness of being a corporate lawyer, I'd love to just hear your perspective on camping. If you could tell us about the first time that you ever went camping as a child and your memories of being outdoors as a child. Uh, yeah, I love being outdoors. It's something that I've been passionate about for as long as I can remember. And I think that passion started, you know, when I was a young kid, my parents used to take my sister and I camping. Um, it was something, you know, the experience camping was much different than you get, you know, obviously riding your mountain bike or your BMX bike around the neighborhood. Um, and we, my parents started uh, bringing my sister and I camping, I think when I was about in the third grade. And I just, I just fell in love with it instantly just because it was, it's really pretty. And it's, just so much different the way you experience in the city. So yeah, that's from it's from there that my my love of the outdoors and outdoor recreation was born. Yeah, totally, man. Totally agreed. I had a very similar experience as a child and went camping a lot growing up. And uh it's just such a cool way for your family to kind of connect as well. That that again you get to do all these things that you don't do back in normal society, but you also kind of connect on this like different level. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, you know, at home, there's a lot of ways to connect at home, but a lot of those ways end up being around the TV or maybe you're sitting around reading books together, whatever, you know, is your fancy. It's just different when you're out in nature because you don't have those same distractions. So yeah, yeah, you get to experience this deeper relationship with your family or whomever it is that you're with outdoors. Yeah, totally, man. All right, now let's uh, let's go really conversely with that that experience of camping as a child to now fast forward a whole bunch of years in your life, and mm-hmm. now you are making this decision to go to law school. Um, like, what right. what made you make that decision? Why did you decide to go to law school? That is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so i I wish I had an answer which was more like. You know, I loved the outdoors, and so I decided to go to law school to be an outdoor type of attorney. But unfortunately, it's not quite that romantic. I just <laughs> I, I basically went to law school because I got bored doing um, what, what I was doing after my undergraduate degree, and just had the desire to do something more, to learn something more. And oh, cool. So you uh, actually graduated from regular college with a different degree, started working, and then decided, like, hey, this isn't really for me. Yeah, exactly. I. I have an undergraduate degree in economics and actually used used that somehow to get into marketing and did marketing for a year or so. And nothing wrong with marketing. It's an important job, but it wasn't for me. And I just couldn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. So thought I had one of two choices. I either started to like, I better start to like it or I better figure out how to do something else. And that something else ended up being law school. (laughs) That's such a unique something else to do. I can't imagine too many people in marketing that are like, I know, I'll just be a lawyer instead. That seems like (laughs) such an unbelievable jump. Was somebody in your family a lawyer? No, nobody in my family. I'm the first one. Damn, that's so crazy, man. What a weird, uh, what a weird choice. Like, why was that a choice for you? I mean, basically, I knew I wanted to either be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, with regard to the doctor thing, that made a lot of sense because I was always really passionate about science, but the prerequisites to do that were, it would have taken me a long time to do that. From yeah, where you would have had to basically go to a whole another undergraduate, right? In a sense. Yeah. Not quite, but very close. Um, and then the lawyer option, you know, so very different from, you know, the medical option. Um, nevertheless, I, I do like doing research. Uh, I like reading for whatever reason, I picked, you know, medical school or law school as my two choices and ended up going to law school because it was the faster path to something different. Yeah. It's funny because both of those jobs are jobs that are like very respected and also very hated by society. 
<laughs> so That's for sure. those are good good options that you came up with. Um, good options to be hated, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. So talk about being able to to get this job um, at your current company that makes all kinds of outdoors equipment. You get to go to different um, camping, uh, whatchamacallit, it's like camping expos and stuff like that, which is so funny to me that they would send a lawyer to different <laughs> expos and stuff. But uh, <laughs> it, it just sounds like I, I can't imagine a more awesome thing for somebody that grew up loving the outdoors and like really loves the outdoors um when you graduated were you just like this is what needs to happen or did you just have some sort of providence open up for you uh kind of a little bit of both really fortunately throughout you know having gone through law school law school didn't beat the passion out of me that i have for the outdoors and i knew by the time that i was close to graduating that i didn't want to work for a firm because that to me would have taken me away from the outdoors too much i mean after graduation i intended to work very hard. I just didn't think, you know, a firm, a role at a law firm was right for me. I, I wanted to see if I could find a balance between, you know, doing what I had trained, was now trained to do is be an attorney, but also, you know, how could I put that to use in an industry that shared some of my passions? And yeah, I ended up finding a job in house, um, being a being general counsel for a company um, that makes outdoor recreational equipment. And that, that seemed to me something that I just couldn't pass up. So yeah, Eric, it's so cool to me what you did and what you do. And I think it's something that is so often overlooked by people and overlooked on this show and stuff a lot and overlooked in conversation. We're often told to just like completely chase our passions and like get a job doing what you love and you never have to work a day in your life and that whole sort of thing. Um, but what you do and what's just this amazingly terrific option is to get a skill set and then go and work in a field that, that is involved in the things that you were interested in. So let's say, um, like rather than if you loved golf, becoming a professional golfer and being like, that's the only way I'm going to be happy is if I get paid to golf for a living because I love to golf. To say, you know what, I could I could get a degree in marketing like how you had before, and then I could try to go and get a job working for Callaway, um, who makes golf clubs, and I could do marketing for them. And now this is this way that I can kind of like blend my career and my hobby together as one. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about like the experience of I guess having a job like that that is involved with your hobby but is not your hobby. Right. Yeah. I think. I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody would pay me to ride my bike and drink beer and I never had to come to the office, I would take that in a heartbeat. Sounds great, (laughs) right? But that's not going to be an option for probably anybody. So, yeah, being able to find a job where, you know, I can practice my craft, which is the law, but also meld that with my passion is, I think, kind of the best of both worlds. And I mean, and it's particularly good for me because I do like the law. It's not like, something that I do because I have to do and I'm always, you know, I'm doing it, but I can't wait to get out of the office so I can go outside. Like when I'm actually doing my job and then, you know, five, six days a week, it's something that I, that I really like. And it's just, you know, it's just the uh, sugar on top that I can do this thing that I, tr- that I like and that I was trying to do within an industry that I'm so passionate. Well, it's not the industry, but within an industry that caters to, something that i'm so passionate about which is the outdoors yeah that's really cool so let's talk about being general counsel and and a little bit about your job so first of all is a general counsel lawyer the same thing as a corporate attorney are those just two sides of the same coin yeah those synonymous okay cool um so what are the range of legal matters that a general counsel might handle for a company yeah it really depends on the company a general counsel might be specialized within the company and there may be many general counsels within a company um, one general counsel at a, at a larger company might be just in charge of um, intellectual property. There might be somebody who's just in charge of employment law. For a smaller to medium-sized company, which is the type of company that I work for, I'm kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I, I get into many, many different types of law. I'd say the majority of things that I do are related to intellectual property, but I also am the 
individual who reviews, you know, non-disclosure agreements, writes those, writes and drafts those agreements, um, deals with, you know, problem employees and what we what can be done legally, you know, to get rid of them if they're not working out. Um, I, I work with our CFO on occasion on, you know, this is a rarity, but on, on tax things, it really spans the gamut of things that I focus on here as general counsel. Is that a big difference from just being a standard lawyer? Like if you were working at a law firm by yourself, would you have to be a lot more specialized than that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, a lot of lawyers in the firm, they may be, they may have a broad specialty like corporate law, which encompasses a lot of different type of law. But for the most part, I think you go to a firm to find somebody who's an expert in employment law or an expert in patent law things like that. So I, you'll probably have lawyers writing in cursing me, but my understanding is that, yeah, they have much narrower focus, but are less able to advise on a wide range of topics. Yeah. That's got to make you like the coolest lawyer around. I imagine when you're like hanging out at the lawyer bar that all the lawyers hang out (laughs) at, they're like, dude, you got to tell me about your job. Oh yeah, I am for sure the coolest guy. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> far from it. But I do think that it gives me a lot of things. I, it, my job provides me a lot of opportunities not to get bored. Um, I don't know that you know somebody in a firm who specializes in one type of law necessarily gets bored either. They're probably very busy folks. But I like the fact that I can come to work every day and I can then be reviewing a, a patent for a new piece of technology. Well, I should say, where I'm reviewing a patent application for new that we want to submit for a new p- piece of technology. Um, I'm reviewing marketing literature to make sure that we're, you know, that you know, truth in advertising and that we're not being deceptive. I like the broad range of things that I get to deal with. I mean, it can be a bit overwhelming because yeah, I'm never quite sure what's going to hit my desk or who's going to walk through my door. I mean, I could be working on a patent one day, you know, one hour and the next hour. I could be working on some kind of car- corporate governance issue. That's again, crazy, that, 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 man. That's good. And it's, it, it, there's pros and cons to that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I certainly see the, pro- I mean, I see both sides. Yeah, totally. Obviously the pro of just the diversity of your days. And like you said, kind of keeping things fresh for you, but man, that's gotta be, um, but just mentally taxing. That's gotta be very, di- how do you, how do you even like schedule your days? Like, how, like, how are you, how do you decide? I, I imagine there's probably so many different people from within your company that are wanting you to help with something or another. Like the people in marketing are like, come on, Eric, like we really need you to look over these things. Meanwhile, your CEO is like, Hey dude, uh, we are getting sued right now by these people. Like this is priority number one. And like, I just can't imagine how your scheduling goes. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I mean, it all boils down to triage. Um, I mean, the, mar- the marketing example you give is is very good because that happens all the time. And it feels a little bit bad sometimes because I can't, I mean, there's only one of me for a company of several hundred people. So um, sometimes, you know, the marketing folks don't get the immediate attention that they would like to receive. And, you know, that's just a function of the fact that, again, there's only one of me. So, it really is just triage. I mean, I do, I deal with litigation as well. Um, litigation is, you know, there's a case schedule and there are deadlines that have to be met. And if we have to send out, you know, a bunch of responses or, you know, interrogatories or something, that's going to, and you know, and those are due tomorrow, that's going to take precedence over everything else. So yeah, it's, it's very challenging. Um, but you know, with by triaging things, we get through it. We don't always make everybody happy, which we wish, which I wish I could, but yeah, that's all right. You're it. an attorney. So people like, don't expect you to make them happy, you know, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, I would like to ask you just some kind of more rapid fire questions that I have not exactly a lot to do with what you do for a living, but are just, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity of having you on the show to answer some of these questions. So, sure. um, like when we were talking about the, uh, the glad trash bags example earlier, and I guess, you know what, the same thing could probably go for you guys in, uh, tents or in stuff like that. Hmm. If you are making a product, like, let's say you were making glad trash bags and I, I don't know why I keep giving glad all these plugs. <laughs> I, let's say you're making trash bags and, uh, and 
you know, a child suffocates with the trash bag or a person suffocates with the trash bag. Mm. Are companies able to be protected by warnings? Um, like, hey, we ha- there's a warning right on there. Like, don't put it over your head and you might get suffocated if so. And if companies are protected by warnings, what happens when somebody does sue them? And C, if companies are protected by warnings, then why would companies not just place all kinds of warnings on every product ever? Because then it's like, look, you can never sue us for anything because we have like a million pages of warnings on that thing. So you, we can't be sued. Wow. I mean, that's We could have a whole show just on this, this one question. <laughs> but also, I'll try to answer it with as much brevity as I can. Um, so yeah, warnings can help insulate a, a manufacturer from liability, but a warning can be defective just like the product can. So if, you know, you know, you don't have to warn against things that are obvious. Uh, you know, you don't have to put a sticker on a knife that says this thing will cut you. That's obvious. You don't have to warn about that, but things like a trash bag, and maybe we all feel this is obvious now, but obviously, but, but at one time it wasn't some child or somebody was suffocated and that necessitated the need to have a warning if that warning is sufficient well let's say well let me back up there's we can say basically there is inherent danger there's inherent something inherently dangerous about dangerous about a trash bag somebody can suffocate they can cut off your air supply so is it reasonable uh, economically feasible to design that out if it is then just putting a warning on there isn't necessarily sufficient. If it's something that's not, you're, if, there's a, if the danger is not something that you can design out, engineer out, then you can use a warning, to, hopefully one that is sufficient to help, yeah, protect the company and the consumers from, well, to help the comp- protect the company from uh, a product liability suit and protect the consumers, which is ultimately the most important thing, from experiencing that danger yeah okay so that's interesting so the first onus is on the company to protect the consumer and not to just write you know blanket warnings about all kinds of different hypothetical things the first Mm -hmm. onus is on the company that you have to make some sort of reasonable effort to to make this thing as safe as possible that's correct yep i would say that's accurate i mean yeah if there is that onus on the you know you're gonna hear people uh, say that you know those warnings are on there and just to protect the company, protect the ass of the company, and they don't you know companies don't really care about consumers. And that may be true with some companies. You know my company, you know with me and the position that I have, that's definitely not true. I feel that you know protecting the company and protecting the consumer is actually something that reconciles well. If you protect the consumer adequately by uh, we're talking about warnings by putting a warning on there that's adequate then that not only does it protect the consumer, it's ultimately going to protect the company as well. So these things are not really, these goals, protecting the consumer and protecting the company are not mutually exclusive necessarily at all. Yeah. But so like uh, a car company or something, they cannot just put a warning on their car that says like, um, all tires may explode, causing the vehicle to flip over, in which case you'll die warning and then it's like oh that exact situation happened oh man sorry like you're not allowed to sue us we said that all four tires might explode <laughs> yeah uh well i mean a manufacturer could try that I, such a warning probably wouldn't hurt anything but it would it ultimately help anything likely not but here's the real rub is that even if a manufacturer has a warning that's probably you know that's really good it doesn't mean that that manufacturer still isn't going to get sued. People, uh, in my experience, have a very difficult time accepting responsibility for their own stupid actions. Absolutely. And, and therefore, they, you know, they try to shirk the responsibility and put it put the put their liability on the company. And so, yeah, I've, I've dealt with a number of issues where we have had warnings on products that said explicitly in large colored letters do not do this and had consumers come back having done the thing that we told them not to do and they want us to pay for it and i was like well uh no <laughs> you know and no and did those work out for you guys like you guys won those cases yeah sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't um a no will be enough 
um, for some consumers, and a no for those who are just completely unreasonable. Are it, sometimes it won't be enough. They'll go. They'll go get an attorney and they'll sue you. And then, 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 yeah, <laughs> then that can take a number of different paths. On what grounds are they suing? I feel like if somebody were to point out to me, oh, hey, there's a warning with these big letters, I would just be like, um, I, I guess. What kind of legal grounding does that person have to be able to sue you? There's so much about the um, the legal system that I just don't understand whatsoever. Like, how how is that even allowed to take place? How how does the court system not just immediately throw out that case? Mm. It's a that's another complicated question to ask. Or sorry to answer, but the a, a warning being adequate is subjective until perhaps a court tells you that it was adequate. Mm, so even if the if we put a warning on a I'd excuse my company, for example, if we put a warning on a product and you know it is very explicit, it is in big letters, nobody could possibly have missed it, uh, somebody will say, nope, it still wasn't adequate. And we'll ask them why. And they won't necessarily tell us. They'll just they'll take us to court and then the court will tell us, no, it was adequate or it wasn't adequate course before we ever get there we'll probably settle because it costs more money to litigate that type of thing than it does just to settle out of court uh, i mean we don't it's not to imply that we just roll over anytime somebody accuses us of something but sometimes <laughs> the, the, the economic reality is it's much cheaper to settle than to um litigate yeah it's good you clear that up you don't want just all kinds of people suing your company <laughs> like suing you right now as they hear you say that um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I've seen this happen a lot in this industry, particularly. They'll try to return stuff that they uh, that they bought at a yard sale that's or that's broken, and try to get a refund on th- things. And I, my company, we take a really hard stand on that, and we don't allow people to get away with that. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty pervasive in this industry. What is the strangest thing that you have seen since you've been there in terms of being sued? In terms of um, any sort of people like coming at your company in some way? My company produces snowshoes, which in no way, shape, or form were designed to kick yourself with. <laughs> They're designed to provide uh, additional flotation in snow, so you can walk across snow. Um, we didn't have a warning on our snowshoe that said, don't kick yourself, because it's obvious. But I dealt with one case where an individual came to us saying that he had kicked himself with a snowshoe and cut himself and had got an infection and wanted a bunch of money and blah, blah, blah. And you know, we, were, we were asking this guy, uh, why'd you kick yourself? Well, because you didn't tell me not to. I was like, what? Really? We, so you needed a warning to tell you from us to tell you not to kick yourself? I mean, and I can't even really get into it past then because it just, it you know, devolved into complete nonsensical uh, banter after that. I mean, the guy was trying to justify why we owed him money for kicking himself with, with his snowshoe. So was that the type of thing that you would just settle for just to not have to deal with this? Or is that the type of thing where it's like, look, there's just no way that a judge is going to side with this guy. Like we got to take him to court. So in the instance of snowshoe kicking himself guy, um, we took a hard stance on that one. I mean, that one just was beyond ridiculous. Sure. It would have been cheaper to settle, but it's not the type of case that is, that I would want to set a precedent with. So we, if the guy had pursued legal action, because actually at the point, this never actually took formal legal action. There were a bunch of threats that lawsuit was forthcoming, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, ultimately a judge or a jury would have had to decide whether or not, <laughs> indeed, a warning should have been on our snowshoe that informed people not to yourself. kick themselves. Yeah. yeah. Dude, that's so crazy, man. I can't, it's just, I I like, I, I, I feel like the, the judicial system in America is so screwed up, but I also don't know how to where to begin like well like where to begin in terms of like fixing it like i i I don't know i don't know how you prevent things like that from happening or i don't know how you make it so people can't do things like that and Mm. yet still completely protect consumers because obviously that needs to be number one right is that like consumers have to be the most protected people um Mm. but 
I, I, I don't know how you still protect consumers and get rid of cases like that, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's a tough, I don't know. I, I wish I had an answer and I'm not, I'm just not sure what it is. Uh, cause if I knew it, I, <laughs> I would suggest it to <laughs> those who could do something about it. It's just a really unfortunate problem that, well, I think, well, there's a problem with, you know, there's, Obviously, ways that the legal system could be improved. Something else that could be improved, improved would be if we could convince human beings just to take responsibility for their actions. Yeah. I mean, short of covering a product with a million warning labels, uh, you know, what, what's a manufacturer to do? I mean, I know that my company, we, we thoroughly test all our products. We have the best engineers that we can hire. Um, and we, much to the chagrin of my marketing department, they are covered with more warnings than you would expect to see because I've made made our company put them there to protect us and the consumer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to do. We're still going to get sued. Yeah, totally, man. It's crazy. I mean, to your point, I mean, look at look at like stuff from Apple and everything. Like, if you download a new version of iTunes, there is like a fifty-one page long thing that you have to agree to. Right. And that is a freaking software program. Like, how <laughs> how much beef could you have with iTunes? Like, like what exactly could the problem be? Right. You're, you guys are dealing with, like, a tent that comes with, like, stakes to hammer into the ground. And, you know, like, other things that, like, you could see where things would go wrong. Um, it, it, yeah, it's just, <sighs> man, I, I, don't, I don't envy you. <laughs> yeah, I don't envy myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have to say that to be fair, I mean, I'm coming, I'm definitely coming off very much as a as a defense attorney. Um, I don't mean to imply that manufacturers never make mistakes and that warnings are always sufficient. There, although it, with my company, we deal with a number of people. The majority of claims that come across my desk are completely bogus. You know, once in a while, something comes across our desk that makes us think and we learn something from. So. I don't know, maybe the clunkiness of the legal system and the way that it doesn't always work right. Maybe maybe that's the price we pay for protecting that small percentage of consumers who, you know, actually were harmed. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, if only somehow that could get flipped. But uh, short of changing um, culture and changing society in America, I don't think that there's really much you could do on the legal system side of things. Yeah, um, probably. So uh, let's let's get back to you, man. Let's get back to your job and some of the cool stuff that you get to do. So, um, yeah, just tell us about some of the extra cool things that you get to do because of the the fun, cool company that you work for. A num- some of the things that I get to do that I think are particularly fun in my position is getting to see technology and products that I will def- that I'm definitely a consumer of. You know, before anybody else gets to see them, um, my company is particularly innovative in the self-inflating sleep mattress um, space. And actually, that seems probably like a pretty boring thing, but it's not. (laughs) We've got some really interesting technology. There's some really interesting technology in terms of, um, you know, how these mats are manufactured and the type of materials that are inside them. Anyway, that's, you know, I've been using a camping mat mattress for as long as I can remember. And now I actually get to see what those look like before they come out. And you know, although I'm not an engineer, sometimes the things that I say, I think, you know, help influence maybe a little bit of the design. Uh, so that is something that I think is really cool. Not only do I get to, again, kind of practice my my skill um, in, in it helping to evaluate this technology in terms of patentability, but yeah, I also get to see it. Stuff comes across my desk all the time. I'm like, oh, cool. I can't wait to get one of these. I feel like there's no better example that you could have given to really illustrate the point earlier of the benefit of working in a field that you really care about and how Mm -hmm. that impacts your ability to enjoy your job. Because, yeah, there's probably not a more boring product that you guys make than a sleeping (laughs) mat. And that you're like, oh, yeah, sleeping mat. Like, that's it. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you didn't care about camping, like, you wouldn't care at all, and that would not be mm. cool. Yeah, I mean, it bore most people to tears, you know. I mean, I can nerd out about caddy mats and tents and stuff, and, you know, other people can nerd out about whatever and wine, you know. It's to each his own, right? Yeah, dude, absolutely. So, Eric, you mentioned them bringing new products to you, like the uh, super cool camping mat and stuff like that. 
why is it that they need to bring new products to you and why do they come to you with this stuff is it just to make sure that labeling and warnings are going to be correct like what what sorts of reasons do they need a lawyer to look at this yeah it's a great question so yeah labels and warnings that comes after that comes far down the road um you know long far far past the ideation commercialization phase if an engineer has an interesting idea why he or she needs to bring that well needs why he or she should bring that to the legal department, i.e. me, is so that I can help ensure that that idea hasn't been thought of before and, and, and there's a patent covering that idea. And the last thing that any company uh, wants to do is make a large capital investment in tooling machinery to crank out a product that it then can't crank out without a license from somebody. Um, and sometimes... Yeah, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes the you know an engineer will come to me a little later than 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 she should have, and because of that, we lose money um, because we have to then go back and change the design. So it's it's important that engineers come to me for 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 a number of reasons early on in the design kind of ideation process. So again, so that we're not that we don't end up infringing somebody else's intellectual property. So that's another thing that I, I should have asked earlier when we were at just covering weird questions about uh, legal issues and stuff like that, is you read so much more now about, and it seems so much more prevalent, that companies are doing these kind of like patent and intellectual property arms races. And I know that that's very much a thing, obviously, like in the technology world. Is that as much of an issue or a thing in the product world, like where you are? Like, do you find people patenting things when they don't even really have any plans to sell it yet i don't i mean i see that all over the place i don't see that so much in the outdoor industry you know a lot of companies in the outdoor industry are are smaller companies they just don't have the revenue to patent every every brain fart that somebody comes up with so i don't see that happening much in my industry and what is the deal with the patent so if you come up with a patent for an intellectual property, how long before, um, how lo- how long do you have to make an actual prototype of that intellectual property or to do something with that intellectual property as opposed to it just being an idea in your head um, before the patent office just says, "Look, we're we're wiping this thing away because you haven't done anything with it right- yet." Yeah, when you get a patent, it's good for. 20 years from the date of filing. So it doesn't, once you get a patent, you don't have to do anything with it other than paying maintenance fees to the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office. There isn't any requirement to keep that patent alive. It, you pay, your, you pay the, the fees that are due and it, and it stays alive. You never have to, once it's granted, yeah, there is no requirement that you show the patent office that you are using the patent or you're building something that, the patent covers again you could just sit on it if you wanted so why i guess do we not have even more patent trolling than we already have (laughs) don't give anybody any ideas uh i I think trolling is a pretty pervasive and serious problem and uh, i think there is a lot of it that goes on i think if anything if if there's anything that hinders people from just deciding to be patent trolls it's that patents are very expensive to to prosecute um if you i'd say i don't know if this is exactly correct but i'd say the average utility uh, utility patent application from start to finish to the point where it's actually granted will easily run an inventor ten thousand dollars oh damn that's crazy yeah it's it's not that i mean if you got endless amounts of cash i suppose you could go patent a whole bunch of stuff and then try to find people who yeah. are using your technology and but if you got endless to... amounts of cash you probably got better stuff to do than that <laughs> well i hope so yeah okay interesting that's good to know I've, I've always wanted to know a little bit more about that all right man so let's talk about just the overall pros and cons of being a general counsel lawyer um we've obviously covered several of them already in the interview um, but in your eyes, what are what are some of the other pros and cons of being a general counsel lawyer versus being a, a standard, um, like, on-your-own, lone wolf sort of lawyer? So the pros and cons of being general counsel, 
One of the cons, let me start with the cons. I think one of the cons is that you are not a specialist, that you are this jack of all trades. And that makes life difficult because the law, there are countless statutes out there and there's no way that any one person can be an, an expert in all of them. So although I like the fact, I guess as a pro, although I like the fact that I get to delve into many different types of law, the con associated with that is that you know, I, it's, it's hard to keep up. It's hard for me to keep up with all the, you know, it's not just that, you know, like employment law, the statutes change, but there's also case law that comes into being, you know, all the time. And it's hard to keep up with that. Somebody uh, who is in a firm, for instance, who is a, you know, who portrays himself as a employment law lawyer, that person is going to spend a lot of time keeping up with the case law, but it's going to be easier for that person than it is for me because that person only needs to focus on employment law. Uh, for generally speaking, for me, you know, a lot of times I come up to speed in the relevant part, parts of the law when I need to. Uh, <laughs> you're, yeah, as you're getting sued for something, that's when you're needing to uh, to figure out what's what's been happening in the past year. Right. I, it's like I keep picking on employment law only because I've been working on that all day. But uh, yeah, there are certain things that I have just learned today that I didn't know this morning. And it's just because there was a, there's an issue that was relevant, then I had to search that. I don't know that it's a huge detriment to the job. It's just, you know, an employment lawyer would know that right off, right off the bat. Somebody right. worked at, at a firm. So, right. Um, let's see other. So a pro I think is that, you know, general counsel, is a position that that pays a decent wage. Uh, I think that's that's very nice. The con would be in earning that wage. I put in a lot of hours. Um, the so yeah. Do you find I, that? Do you find that that while putting in a lot of hours, it still is less than a um, just like a regular attorney? Interesting, because five years ago, I would have said yes. Um, today, not so much. I think I probably put in as many or nearly as many hours as somebody at a firm does, just given you know the the size of my company and the way that it's growing and kind of the increased responsibilities my company has given me recently. So that's incredible. I figured that was going to be like the number one thing on the pros list was just the the <laughs> workload. Man, you guys got to hire another lawyer, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give you the uh, my boss's number. <laughs> that would be a great idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you just got to find some way to like casually be playing this interview over uh, like the speakers in the lunchroom or something. Uh, yeah, no, no, no kidding, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so yeah, I guess uh, depending hugely on what company you're working for, it, it you know, in in how staffed they are, you're either going to be working less hours, the same, more, whatever. Um, and then what kind of pay could you be looking at as a corporate lawyer? Yeah, varies widely depending on the company size. Somebody who's working for a Microsoft, I would imagine they could make, you know, 200 plus a year. And somebody who's working for a teeny tiny company, a startup, they're going to make obviously a lot less. For a mid-sized company like me uh, that I work like I work for, somebody could expect a salary range, you know, from 100 to 175. Which is great. And, and coming from the medical world and, you know, talking with doctors all the time, and like something that the doctors would always, I guess, be jealous of is just the consistency of paycheck and not having to have your own business and stuff like that, which are all of the exact same things that a lawyer has to deal with, you know? Um, right. So I guess it's just got to be a little bit less of a burden like a little a little bit less of a stressful burden not having your own business and knowing exactly when and where your paycheck is coming from yeah that's actually spot on i, I should have mentioned that probably is the the biggest pro um in my of my position is yeah i don't have billable hours somebody at a firm they have to bill you know 18 2000 hours a, a year and if they don't make that you know they might not be with that firm in a subsequent year they might get fired they might get let go i don't have to deal with that it's not to say that i don't put in a ton of hours and i'm not expected to work hard i am but it is nice not having that billable hour requirement it, every you know my paycheck comes every week regardless you know yeah, that's so nice 
it's funny. It's like, those are the things that, that most of us take for granted so much. And we, we do hold up lawyers and doctors in such high esteem and everything. Um, meanwhile, us mere mortals usually, usually work for just like regular old companies, you know, and we're thinking like, right. Oh, that'd be so cool to be a lawyer or a doctor. Like, aren't they so great? And meanwhile, you guys are sitting there thinking like, man, wouldn't it be great to just get like a regular old paycheck? You know, like th- <laughs> right. that is just this, this great thing to have. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Actually, go ahead. makes me think of something. Uh, yeah. Just with regard to pay, I know a lot of people are going to consider, you know, the, you know, what the lawyers probably get paid too much. I just had to get in my bit about that, which is, I don't think that lawyers get too much money. We do make, good money, certainly probably above average money. But people need to remember that we went to school for a long time to be able to do what we do. And we have a lot of continuing education requirements that we have to fulfill. And obviously you have to pass the bar. And unless you can, unless you had really rich parents, you probably have a bunch of loans that it took to go to law school. So I, 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 I have friends who chide me a bit. They're like, "Oh, you make so much money." I'm like, "Yeah, but do you have a hundred grand in loans? <laughs> oh, did, did you t- did, did it take? You know, did you have to go to school for an additional four years to do do what you do?" So, Eric, I think that that this interview has been a good lesson in um, kind of finding finding ways to make a career work for you, or finding ways to. Um, to find a career that, that inter, interweaves with these things that you enjoy and stuff like that. Something else that I've been thinking about is that it, it also sounds like being a corporate lawyer is kind of um, for more of like a non-confrontational introverted type of person. Like typically I think we think of lawyers as being these like incredibly like type A people that are like arguing like crazy in the courtroom and you don't seem like some like crazy in your face type A sort of person. Do you think that mm. this is like a good path for this other group of people that maybe are a little bit less confrontational or maybe a little bit less uh, or a little, maybe a little bit more introverted, but yet they still really enjoy law? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally true. It, it's funny because it, when I talk to some of the people that I went to high school with who, you know, they, don't, they didn't know I was an attorney their comment was, you're an attorney? Like, you never talked in high school. You were so quiet. <laughs> you know, and I, I can get up, and I have argued in court, but yeah, I'm not, that's not my strong point, or at least it's not what I like to do. I do, I am more introverted. I do like more to sit at my desk and crank out contracts and things like that. And I would say that, yeah, a general counsel position is definitely much more conducive to that type of work than than you know somebody well certainly a litigator yeah absolutely maybe even maybe even people at firms so i mean there are a number you know somebody at a firm might be a a contracts expert they're probably not doing a lot of you know arguing in court so you know you could find you could find your niche as well if you're introverted in a firm i would imagine yeah yeah sounds like it so, Eric, let's go ahead and uh, finish this thing up with advice kind of in that realm. So I'm not going to ask you for advice on how to be a lawyer, because obviously the advice is you've got to go to law school and it's pretty simple and then you, you'll become a lawyer. So <laughs> um, right. let's try to give advice for people that are maybe just looking to connect with their job a little more without leaving their career behind or for people that feel a little bit lost, like you said, like they can't get paid to uh, drink beer and go and hang out on the weekend. And they're wondering, like, am I ever going to be able to find something that I'm passionate about? Um, I guess, what advice would you give to people just looking to have a little bit more fulfillment and enjoyment with their job? So my advice to people out there, to the extent that I'm qualified to give advice, (laughs) is (laughs) that, yeah, I mean, don't think that if you're an accountant, for instance, that the only thing you can do is work in the basement of um, some accounting firm and, and hate life. Now, if that's your passion, you like that type of environment, great. But, you know, if you're an accountant and you love being outside like I do, try to get a job as an accountant, maybe in a an outdoor company like mine. Um, you know, and it, you know, I keep using the outdoor example, but I mean, that extends to really any passion that you have. Uh, if you love cooking, work for I count at a cooking magazine. 
Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of things. There's a lot of ways that I suspect people don't consider when when they're trying to find a job that makes them happy. Maybe you could chase money all day long, but if ultimately, you know, if you make a ton of money, but you're doing something that you don't like, or you're doing something within an industry that is just god awful boring to you, yeah, find something else. Uh, ask yourself the question: what What do I What do I like? What do I What's fun? You know, what do I do when I get home at night? You know, it's playing video games. Maybe look to do something at a video game manufacturer, you know, or if you're like me, you just, you love riding your bike and uh, climbing, maybe find a job at a local bike manufacturer or a climbing hold manufacturer. I mean, there's just a lot of ways, again, that I think people um, tend not to consider that, you know, ways in which you could be much more happy at your job by finding things that meld somewhat with your passions. Yeah, totally. So often we just look for the job itself to make us happy. Like what, what is the, the day-to-day of the actual job um, and, not, and not the industry as this, mm-hmm. this perk. And like the industry is being something that can give us a little bit more fulfillment. And mm-hmm. uh, clearly you're a good example of, of the industry um, really being able to improve your quality of life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one piece of advice that I would give to people who maybe are considering, you know, their job and whether they're happy and if they could be more happy is don't chase the money. Money is nice for sure, right? But I think I've, I've read a statistic a number of times where, you know, after you make 60 or 70,000 bucks, it doesn't really make you any more happy. Um, so maybe think a little bit more long term like if you're gonna make a pile of money doing something you hate maybe that's not the right decision maybe make a little less money but do something you really love i mean that seems like simple advice but again i think a lot of people forget that (laughs) yeah easy to forget um dude eric thank you so much for coming on the show man we really appreciate it yeah it was my pleasure thanks blake Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Eric. Just to reiterate, we have a contest going on that starts today, Monday, September 5th, and goes till Wednesday, September 21st, surrounding uh, leaving reviews for Half Hour Intern on iTunes. We've got a bunch of cool stuff to give away thanks to Eric, and there is a pretty decent shot that you could end up winning some of it. So just head over to iTunes and leave a review for Half Hour Intern, and I will uh, give you guys updates on the coming episodes about how many people have submitted reviews and therefore kind of like what your chances are of winning one of the cool things that Eric gave us to uh, to give away are. Thanks so much for listening to the show.